0: You may be seated. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We just finished our little mini-series in uh, stability in the spiritual walk. Having firm footing, firm, firmly rooted feet that won't move we saw that in verses 1 through 9 of Philippians chapter 4. And as I said last week, uh, we are very close to the end of this little letter. And I believe that we could finish it in two messages. But as I was studying through these verses this week, and as I was listening to some other sermons and reading a bunch of commentaries, I, I realized that I do think we should hunker down for just one sermon in this section in verses 10 10. 11 we're moving into a new section there's really one main thought one last section in this letter there's going to be a a tiny little benediction if you will but we're at the very end of this letter and verses 10 all the way through 19 or really through 20 are the last main section of this letter so i want to read these verses and then i want to uh, just give you what i believe paul is saying in these verses and then Uh, Move on to what I believe the Lord would have us learn this morning. So Philippians chapter four, verse 10, Paul writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were very concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. And have an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I really believe what Paul is saying here is very simply, thank you. It's the end of a thank you letter here. It's the end of that thank you letter that you give to your family members after Christmas presents have been given out. Thank you so much for the gift. I've been using it. I love it. This is exactly what I wanted. That's really all he's saying here. And I I want to, as I said in family Bible hour this morning, I want to be careful because if Paul were standing here and I were to ask, what would Paul think about what I think about what Paul thinks here? I want to make sure I'm getting it right, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. And I believe that if we just went into, Paul's talking about contentment, and he's just giving us a theology of contentment. I don't think he's doing that. We're going to go there, but I don't think he's doing that here. If I can be very specific, historically, this is what I think is happening, and and I want to show it to you just briefly, and then we'll move on. You remember Paul was constantly, at least seven times in the New Testament was accused, or he's at least defending himself seven times in the New Testament, of being um, pilfering the gospel for money. He was accused of preaching the gospel so that he could get money. Prosperity gospel. It's existed all the way back in the New Testament times and even before that. Paul was accused of just being a missionary, just preaching the gospel to gain wealth. And there are several verses. I want to just give them to you. You can write them down. 1 Corinthians 9 verses 8 through 14, Paul explicitly says, my reward in preaching the gospel isn't money. It's seeing people won with the gospel. It's seeing lives transformed. I'm not doing this to gain money. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 12, and chapter 12, verse 14 through 18, Paul says that he gladly preaches the gospel ...without charging anything for it, and God knows that. He says, God is my witness. You all can condemn me for preaching the gospel for money, but God is my witness. I'm not doing this for money. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and verse 9, Paul says that they didn't come to the church with flattering speech. The missionaries didn't come with flattering speech or with a pretext, he says, for greed, and God is my witness... I'm not coming to preach the gospel to get money, and God knows that. Finally, Acts chapter 20, verse 33, he says, I have coveted no one's silver, no one's gold, and no one's clothing. So he's always under the gun of, is he doing this just to gain money? Is he doing this just because he's selfish and this is the way he wants to gain money and maybe make a lot of money? Maybe he buy his own private jet, private hel- helicopter, who knows? What's he doing with sharing the gospel? With that as a historical background, I believe that you'll see in these verses, 10 through 19, that Paul is saying, thank you so much for the money, but thank you so much for the gift, but I want you to know I didn't need it. God provides and I'm not doing this to gain money. There's two examples of it. Look at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced and the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You didn't have the opportunity to give. And then he says these words in verse 11, not that I speak from want. So he says, it's not because I'm coveting. It's not because I want money that I'm glad that you sent me money. Uh, Thank you, but I didn't need it, and I wasn't coveting it. You just graciously gave it. So he's deflecting the criticism, if you will, that he is coveting their money. And so he says, I'm grateful for your gift, but that gratitude isn't coming from a discontentment. You're not feeding the idol of, oh, I want more, and thank you for giving me more. He's saying, thank you for being generous, but please know I'm not coveting it. I didn't need it. I'm content without it. That's his first defense. Second, drop down to verse 17, he says these words again, not that I seek the gift itself. So he's defending himself. He's saying, hey, just want you to know, thank you, but. Again, twice he's basically saying, thanks so much, but I didn't need it. And verse 17, thanks so much, not that I seek the gift itself, but instead I seek the profit, or literally the fruit, which increases to your account. So the first time he's saying, uh, he's deflecting criticism by saying, thank you so much, but I wasn't coveting it. I'm not doing this to gain money. Thank you very much for your gift, but I'm not coveting. I'm not discontent. And the second time he's saying, thank you. I am so excited that you sent a gift, but not for the gift for me. I'm excited because the gift proves that you have a heart that is giving. It's a giving heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, They believe the words of Jesus that they are storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. So he says, I'm glad that you gave, not because I needed it, but because you're going to get all of that and more back in heaven. So he's defending himself. And honestly, I believe that's all this section is saying. There's a lot in it, but I think he's just saying, guys, I'm content. I didn't need it. And I really appreciate the gift, but I'm more excited that you're going to be blessed and your blessing will abound in heaven for your gift. I think that's the historical backdrop of these verses. Now, you can see the theme, though, is seen several times in verse 11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along, verse 12, with humble means, with prosperous means. I know in every circumstance the secret of being filled or going hungry. I have learned to be content. So he is saying, I am content. And I believe, so this is what I do during my typical week. I study up until about Wednesday, just trying to formulate my own thoughts, my own work on the passage. And then Thursday and Friday, I usually start reading other people's thoughts and listening to other sermons. And I was riding my bike, listening to a sermon by a man named Tom Pennington. He's a pastor in Texas, a great man of God. He was a pastor at Grace Community Church for a while, very influential in many ways in my life. And I was listening to a sermon by him on contentment. And what I realized is, Though I don't think Paul is explicitly trying to give a theology of contentment. I think we should. I think we should. And here's the reason why. Um, You're going to go home today, you're going to turn on your television, and your entire worldview is going to revolve around people telling you you don't have enough. You don't have enough. Just the, the the next television ad that you see, see if it isn't true. Um, See if that isn't the the main worldview behind it, the motivation behind it. I wonder what television ads would be like if there was no pull at our greed, covetousness, and discontentment. Hey, this is a cool product, but you probably don't need it, so I don't think that's going to sell. But look at what they all say. I mean, think about the iPhone 6 just comes out, and they show, hey, this phone, um, if you have the 5S, which is only like a year old, if you have that, you don't have a phone. Like, does it make, does it even make phone calls? Like, um, this phone does this thing that checks your heart rate. And if you can't check your heart rate, you're probably not alive, so you need this phone. Like, the way that they do it is just terrible. One of my favorite ones is um, razor blade commercials, shaving commercials. It's like, your your razor blade doesn't go from here to here? Like, Are you in the stone ages? Like, what are you doing shaving with this terrible razor? Is your TV awesome? Is it the newest, latest, greatest? The entire world revolves, at least our culture revolves, around discontentment. And that's why, again, please, please hear me. I don't think that Paul is trying to give an exhaustive understanding, an exhaustive theological understanding of contentment, which is why we're going to have to do that. Because he's just saying, don't worry, I'm content. So my question for us this morning, I think you have it in your bulletin, is where does discontentment come from? If you want to know what a thing is defined as in the Bible, contentment, if we want to know what that is, one of the best ways we can figure out what something is is by looking at what it isn't. So we're going to define contentment this morning with what it isn't. What is discontentment? Why do we struggle with discontentment? And why is it so infectious in our culture? And ultimately, it's not just our culture. You remember Genesis chapter 11, a very weird passage, Tower of Babel. They build this tower, and God says they've become a big people. I need to split them apart, different languages, tear down the tower. What's going on there? If I can just say this, I believe it's centered on discontentment. Um, They say, you remember, everybody comes together, and they say, we are going to build for ourselves. A city, a tower, and a name. We're going to build for ourselves a city, a tower, and a name. What's a city? A city is a culture, an environment that thrives off of possessions. We're going to build for ourselves a place that thrives off of our possessions. A city is ultimately saying that Jesus was wrong when he said that even in abundance, a man's life does not um, ultimately become all of his possessions. It's not lived in your possessions people at the Tower of Babel says, no, it is. It's all about what we have. The person with the most toys, when he dies, wins. That's all that matters. And we are going to accumulate as much as we can. A city and a tower or a name, the tower is that ziggurat. It's really a place of worship. And so they're saying, we're going to set up our own place separate from God where we can have our own culture and our own context and our own people. And we don't need God. And it's very interesting to note. In Revelation chapter 17, 18, and 19, it's actually 16 through 19, but 17 and 18, you remember Babylon, which is an offshoot of what Babel is or was, Babylon, those two chapters in 17 and 18, God destroys Babylon and he really does it in two ways. He destroys their city and they're crying out. You remember the merchants, like hailstones are falling, blood spewing everywhere, a third of the universe is dying. It's just chaos and destruction. And what are the merchants saying? Oh, our ships are sinking. We're not going to be able to buy and sell. Our cargo is lost. They don't care about lives being lost. They care about their culture and their context and their cargo being lost. So chapter 17, it's really amazing that God just destroys the culture in the city. And then chapter 18, God destroys their false religion, their perversion of religion and just total gross immorality. So this is as, as old as Babel, and it will go all the way into the future times with Babylon. Discontentment. Where does it come from? What is the root of discontentment? Two things. Let me just give them to you. The root of discontentment, biblically, uh, two g- word groups, lust and coveting. If you want to identify what the root is of our little weed of discontentment, we're going deep into the, the root. There are two main roots that go down and it is lust and coveting. And all of the word groups, verbs, nouns, all of those of lust and covet are found in the Bible to speak of the heart behind discontentment. Turn to Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven. And I apologize beforehand. We are going to move quickly through passages. So Some of them we will all turn to. Some of them, I'm just going to tell you the passage. You can look at them later. But I want to get a biblical perspective on contentment or discontentment. I want to get a biblical perspective on the root of discontentment, on lust and coveting. And I think you can see it very clearly in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Romans 7, 7. Is the law sin?" So is the law inherently in and of itself sinful because it's showing us our sin? No, the law is not. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So it's actually really a good thing. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. So that word coveting and covet, this is how closely related lusting and coveting are that word that's translated coveting and covet in verse 7 is actually the word that's most often translated in the New Testament as lust or lusting. It's epithumia, it's um, to, to love, it's to um, lust after, it's to crave something. So that's, they're so interrelated that when Paul wants to quote the Old Testament law, you shall not covet, he uses the word, you shall not lust. Lusting and coveting really go hand in hand, but there are separate nuances of them, and so we'll look at them. Let's take lust first. Lust is really the enemy of contentment. Let me give you a definition for lust. Lust is a strong desire, a longing of the soul for what will give it delight. Lust is a strong desire, a longing of the soul for what will give it delight. It's a craving. And usually when we hear the word lust, we instantly think of uh, sexual things. We instantly think of sexual lust. But in the New Testament, the word lust is not good or bad. It's a neutral word. And it only becomes bad when you are lusting after wrong things. Let me give you an example of this. Don't turn here. Just write these down. Luke chapter 15, verse 16 says that we, this is um, people, humans, lust after food. They crave food. And that can become gluttony, but in the context of Luke 15, it's not a bad thing. If we don't eat food, we're going to die. So to crave what we need to to live and be sustained is a good thing. So a strong desire, a longing of the soul for what it will give, what will give it delight. A craving, a strong desire. Luke chapter 22, verse 15. uh, Jesus lusts it's very clear in the passage it says that jesus my bible translates it earnestly desires to eat the passover with his disciples and the reason why they translate it that way is because they want to give the emphasis of this is a craving but they do not want to say in the bible that jesus lusted so they translate it uh, earnestly desired they wouldn't translate it lust or covet so they translate it earnestly desired you could have craved but that still sounds weird with jesus so earnestly desired the whole problem in translating that verse helps us understand lust isn't a bad thing. It's a neutral thing that if it's attached to a good thing is a good thing. It's good to crave after good things. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 17, Paul lusted after seeing the church. He desired to see the church uh, in the Septuagint, in the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word is used in Psalm 119, verse 20, about craving the word, which we should do. And in Isaiah 26, verse 9, this word is used about lusting after God himself, craving God himself. And Paul even uses it in Philippians. We saw before how he earnestly desires to depart and be with Christ because that is much better, far better, very much better, he says. He craves after these things. So it's not a bad thing inherent If it's attached to a bad thing, this craving becomes bad. And there's a reason why we think of bad things when we hear the word lust, and it's because most often in the New Testament, the word lust refers to sinful desires, it refers to craving after sinful things. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Um, Thou shalt not covet is uh, in the Septuagint. It's this word lust. Thou shalt not lust. Romans 7, 7, we already saw it. Covet, lust, same idea. Now here's the question. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What does it mean, ultimately, at the core of your being, what does it mean to be lost, to be unsaved, to be unregenerate? If somebody were to ask you that, what would your answer be? What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be somebody who is unsaved? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul tells us ultimately what the foundational aspect of a lost, unregenerate person is. Verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he's clearly talking about non-believers. And he says this, verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So a non-believer, one of the characterizations of who they are, deep down inherent, is that they are lusters. They're craving things that they will never ultimately be able to get to satisfy them. Incessant cravings is really a way you can describe an unregenerate person. And if we're honest, we don't really know that we have those cravings when we're unsaved. Turn to Titus. Titus chapter 3 Verse three, Paul says it similar, uh, a similar way. Titus chapter three, verse three, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So deep down inside, we were enslaved to cravings for basically anything but God. We aren't often aware of these cravings, but we are slaves nonetheless when we are not saved. The moment we are saved, God graciously takes the heart of stone and places a heart of flesh inside of us so that we can long and crave for the right things. A non-believer can't crave spiritual things, righteous things, godly things. But a believer can because when we are saved, God graciously gives us desires for himself. But... Our old fleshly desires, that our sinful desires don't instantly go away. That's glorification. We are still stuck with, as First Peter 2 says, First Peter 2 verse 11, the war that wages between our fleshly desires and our soul. There's a war. The, the remaining indwelling sin in our flesh is still fighting with those old longings and desires, trying to gain access and control our soul. So to sum it up, lust, why do we struggle with contentment? What is the root of discontentment? Because, if I can say it this way, we all have within us cravings of our flesh that are waging war against our soul constantly. We all have within us, in our flesh, cravings of our flesh that are waging war against our soul constantly. So you say, okay, I am a believer Jesus has saved me. I have repented from sin. I have turned to Christ. I am saved. I'm at peace. And then the iPhone commercial comes on. Wait, I'm not at peace. I don't have the newest, latest, greatest thing. How am I ever going to make a phone call if I don't have that? Um, Then it starts and it grows. Different cravings of our soul and longings of our flesh. Lust. That's one of the enemies of contentment. The second enemy is coveting. To covet, covetousness. So we have lust, and then we also have coveting. To define coveting, I would say it this way. It's literally just to want to have more. Lusting is craving after something specifically. Coveting is just wanting more. I'm never satisfied. I don't have enough. I just want more. This is the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet, and we're going to look at that in a little bit. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 these these verses explain to us that being a covetous person through and through is inconsistent with being a believer it's truly inconsistent with being a believer sure believers struggle with this but it's not it's not a life dominating destructive who they are through and through kind of sin 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 Uh, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother if he is an immoral person. So, this is a so called brother. This is somebody who claims to be a believer, but he is immoral. That's what he's characterized by. Or he's covetous. Or he's an idolater. Or he's a swindler. Or a drunkard. Or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. Why? Because they're outsiders, they are non believers. They're in your midst, but they're pagans. They're not believers. So they claim to be believers, but they're not because they prove that their, their claim is false by their covetous heart, their covetous heart. Turn back to Ephesians uh, chapter five, Ephesians chapter five and verse six, Paul writes, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience because of what things go back to verse five. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, it amounts to idolatry, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. I think that we can say, and this is a tough thing to say, but I think based on scripture, we can say this. Based on Paul's words, even in just these two verses, we don't have time to look at all of these verses, but just those two verses. I think Paul would say those whose lives are controlled by and dominated by covetousness are not saved. Those whose lives are controlled by and dominated by covetousness are not saved. We'd say the same thing about immorality. We'd say the same thing about all these sins. But I think that we tend to think of covetousness as one of those respectable sins like Jerry Bridges calls them. Everybody struggles with that. Yeah, we all do, because as an unbeliever, that's what you're characterized by. It's not a sin to be taken lightly. I love um, Aesop's fables. There's a story where there's a man who is known for his covetousness, and Zeus, in this case, tells him, I will give you one wish. I'll grant you one wish. And that, of course, makes this man very happy, right? I get a wish from God. This is great. And as he's about to make his wish, this covetous man is saying, I'm thinking through what I want. And what is is coveting? It's just wanting more. So I just want more of something. And as he's about to make his wish, Zeus says to him, there's one condition about your wish. Whatever you wish for, your neighbor gets double. Whatever you wish for, your neighbor gets double. Now, because this man is a covetous man, all he wants is to have more than somebody else. So he thinks about it, he thinks about it, and in the ultimate expression of covetousness, he asks Zeus to remove one of his eyes so that his neighbor would have both of his eyes removed. I just want more than my neighbor, so I'll take one of my eyes out and and only have one left as long as my neighbor doesn't have any eyes. The ultimate expression of covetousness in idolatry is just saying, I want more than the person next to me. I just want more. I just want more. Now, turn to Exodus chapter 20, because as we think about coveting, the question is, what do we typically covet? And I believe God knew what we covet, so he says, these are the things you should be careful not to covet. Exodus chapter 20, and drop down to verse 17. So this is the last command, and it's really the bookend. Uh, Of the Ten Commandments, you have don't have any other gods and then don't covet, which is don't make anything into a God that you say, this is what I want. Uh, Commercialism, um, materialism, this is what I want to be my God. But look at what God says. You shall. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Literally, it's your neighbor's household. Everything that your neighbor has. And so he kind of goes into that your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's male servant or female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything. Here's an umbrella statement. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. So don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's property, your neighbor's land, your neighbor's things. Um, And everybody, we know, is your neighbor, right? That's what Jesus says uh, in his famous parable. Everybody is your neighbor, the Good Samaritan. Everybody around you is your neighbor. Take care of them, no matter if they're your enemy, if they're your friend. They're your neighbor. So we could say don't covet anyone else's household. Anything that they have in their house, don't covet their spouse. And I would say it this way. Obviously, don't covet their spouse in a sexual way, obviously. But I think that there's so much more there that... We can struggle with coveting. Um, Maybe you come to church. Uh, Maybe your husband is not incredibly affectionate or respectful or caring or compassionate to you. But you see other husbands caring and compassionate and affectionate toward their wives here at church, and you covet that kind of affection and that kind of love. Maybe you see on the the other side, maybe you see a, a wife who is totally submissive and encouraging and just absolutely champion the husband and, and your wife doesn't do that and so you covet. Oh, I wish I had something better. I wish I had something more. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet their spouse. Don't covet any attributes about their spouse saying, oh, I wish I had. I don't have enough. Don't covet male servants or female servants. Don't covet jobs or Fame or prestige or prominence or status. Maybe you say, I only have one servant, they have a thousand. Don't covet them. Don't covet their donkey or their ox. This could be your livelihood, your job. Maybe somebody else has a better job than you and you covet their job. It could also be your transportation. Don't covet somebody else's BMW because your donkey's really bad. <laughs> Don't do that. And then just in case, and I think that list is helpful to think through, okay, there are things that we tend to covet, which is why God says, don't covet these things. But just for the person that says, okay, there's a list. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Oh, he didn't mention this. God says, no, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet their appearance, maybe physically their appearance. I wish I looked like that person. Don't covet their power, their control. Don't covet their status or their position. Don't covet their husband, wife, family, kids. Don't covet. Why? Why shouldn't we covet? Why shouldn't we lust? Ultimately, these two things are the root of discontentment. The two main roots, lusting and coveting. Always wanting more and craving after things. Why shouldn't we covet? Not just because it's not in the, or it's, illegal in the Bible, right? Don't do this. It's prohibited. But can I give you some helpful warnings that for me, as I was reading through some things, I found these very helpful. Let's unmask coveting because I think it, it sin lies, right? Sin lies. And if we can unmask the lie and say, okay, sin tells me if I covet and I get more, I'll be happy. Let's unmask that lie together this morning and say without a shadow of a doubt, if we got more, we will not be happy. That's not what's going to happen. Sin lies. Number one, some warnings. We've got five of these warnings. Number one, covetousness never brings satisfaction. Covetousness never brings satisfaction. Um, Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We have enough time. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is really a book all about this topic. The more you gain, the more you enjoy. It ultimately is all vanity. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says it so well. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity to his vanity. Uh, You remember Rockefeller, um, billionaire, multi-billionaire. He was asked the question, um, when when will you be satisfied? And specifically uh, with your money, when will you be satisfied? And he says that uh, the question was, how much is enough for you? How much is enough for you? Do you remember his answer? Just one more dollar just one more, just one more, just one more, just one more. Covetous heart is never satisfied. If you have a covetous heart, you will never say, okay, I want a billion dollars. And when you get there, you're happy. And we know this experientially. We know so many people, the exact same amount of poor people who commit suicide, exact same amount of rich billionaires who commit suicide. Money has nothing to do with that. It doesn't. And the Bible explicitly says that. And I think one of the reasons why. The rich people stare at their life and say, I'm so empty. I don't know what I'm doing and struggle with depression. You think you're a billionaire. You have it all. No, because even when a man has an abundance of his possessions, his life does not consist of what he owns. That's not the case. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 15, by the way. Uh, Luke 12:15, Jesus says, even when a man has an abundance of possession, his life does not consist in his possessions. One of my favorite YouTube clips, and I I show this to my classes right after the Super Bowl, um, is Tom Brady. I can never remember how many championships he's won. I think he's won three or four Super Bowls, and he's won three or four MVPs of the game, uh, played for the um, New England Patriots, amazing quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback. And he's being interviewed, I think this is a week after his latest Super Super Bowl victory, And the guy says to him, the interviewer says, Tom Brady, are you happy? And he says, you know, you think I would be. You know, you think I would be, but I'm not. And the interviewer says, well, what will bring the happiness? What will ultimately satisfy you? And he says, when I find out, I'll let you know. When I find out, I'll let you know. I mean, the highest achievement that you could get. And he says, everything that I'm striving for, isn't satisfying me. Uh, David Robinson, NBA player, um, believer, he he came to Christ, uh, played for San Antonio Spurs, played against Michael Jordan in the NBA championship and lost and sees Michael Jordan holding the trophy and realizing that this moment in his autobiography, he says, I realized in this moment I was depressed because I wasn't holding what he had. I had everything that Michael Jordan had. I had money. I had fame. I had success. I had wealth. I had it all. But I didn't have that one thing that he was holding, and that made everything that I had meaningless because that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. So for us, it's probably not a Super Bowl ring or an NBA trophy. It's probably not that. Maybe it is. Dream away. Have fun. But for us, what is it? What is it that we say, oh, that is what will make me happy? Working in student ministries for a long time, it was getting a girlfriend or getting a spouse. That's what it was. Now being married for a while, it's having kids, all the friends. Oh, if only we had kids, then we'll be happy. It's just the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And all that to say, be warned, hear very clearly, coveting and covetousness ultimately never brings satisfaction. It can't. Your heart... Was created, your soul was created by God. Infinite, immortal soul to be satisfied by infinite, immortal God. And when we try to put finite, mortal, temporal things into an infinite soul, that can't satisfy. No amount of finiteness can reach infinity and satisfy our souls. Number two, second warning covetousness chokes off spiritual life. Covetousness chokes off spiritual life. Turn to Mark chapter 4. Actually, you don't have to turn there for sake of time. You know it. We we went there a couple weeks ago, a parable of the soils. And one of the soils, because of the cares of this world and the coveting and the lust and desire for other things, chokes out the seed and ultimately destroys the fruit that the gospel brought, proving that that soil is unsaved. It chokes out spiritual life. And that's why Jesus says, In Luke 8, you must hear and obey these words or else you will not find life. You will not have life. So it chokes spiritual life. Being a covetous man or woman starts to dwarf and choke and destroy any sort of growth that is going on spiritually in your life. Number three, covetousness spawns many other sins. I've got good news for you. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Turn there, and we won't turn anywhere else. So we are done flipping around and turning all over the place. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Covetousness spawns many other sins. This is number three, warning number three. Covetousness doesn't come alone. I could say it that way. It doesn't come by itself. It brings other really nasty friends. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, the love, you know this, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So it's not the love of money is the root, it's a root, but it is a root of all sorts of evil. And it's the love of money. It's not money. That's This is one of the most misunderstood and misquoted passages by a, the secular world. Money is the root of all sorts of evil. No, that's not it. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So be careful. But hear Paul's words. Craving after money and coveting... Something that you don't want, don't have more of something that you want is a root of all sorts of evil. Doesn't just come by itself. James chapter four, verse two says it similarly. He says, you covet, you don't have and you want, and therefore you commit murder. You want something, so you kill somebody. And this is an example straight from the Old Testament. David wanted Bathsheba, so he kills Uriah. He coveted something and with covetousness came murder. Uh, The Old Testament is replete with examples of this, of people who are coveting something and lie to get it. So coveting and lying go hand in hand. Covet and murdering. So coveting and murder go hand in hand. It doesn't just come by by itself. You steal to get what you want. You lie to get what you want. Coveting is a serious sin that spawns many other sins. Number four, warning number four, covetousness lets you down when you need help the most. Still in 1 Timothy 6, Covetousness lets you down when you need help the most. Experientially, this is uh, the people that gamble their money away. When you need help the most, uh, when you are at your last dollar, instead of saying we're going to save this work and work and budget, you say let's hope for the best and throw it away. And throw it away. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. The covetous man thinks, at the end of my life, on my deathbed, somehow what I have will help me. And when you need help the most on your deathbed, all of your coveting and all of your possessions just say goodbye. They don't help you at all. They don't help at all. John Piper says it this way. If you were to drop dead right now, would you take a payload of pleasure in God with you? Or would you stand before God with a spiritual cavity where covetousness used to be? It lets you down when you need it the most. Number five, in the end, covetousness just destroys the soul. In the end, covetousness destroys the soul. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. It's destructive. And then verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do this. Keep this confession. Don't let it go. Don't let it destroy you. And how are you supposed to do this? Verse 11. Flee these things. Flee the love of money. Flee a discontent, coveting heart. Flee a lustful heart because it destroys you. It's a snare, verse 9. It's foolish, harmful desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. Five different warnings from the scriptures to not covet. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? If we're not supposed to lust, we're not supposed to covet. What are we supposed to do? Verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But Paul, there's no iPhone in there. There's no fancy car in there. No, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Contentment makes poor men rich. And discontentment makes rich men poor. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to learn to be content. That's one of my favorite words in the book of Philippians. I have learned contentment because that tells me, number one, Paul was not born with contentment. He had to learn it. And that gives me great hope because I still struggle with this and I'm learning. But if Paul could learn it, I can learn it too. If a fallen human like Paul, a sinner saved by grace like Paul can learn it, You and I can learn it too. Ultimately, to be covetous is to be dissatisfied with what God has given to us. Ultimately, it's saying, God, what you have given me is not enough. And even more ultimate, I guess. God, you're not enough. You're not enough. We could say it this way. Coveting is craving something. Putting these two together, lusting and coveting. Covetousness is craving something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Covetousness is craving something so much that God doesn't satisfy you anymore. And you say, I'm not content with this. I don't want God anymore. And you start looking to other things to satisfy you. What's the opposite of covetousness? It's contentment. What's the opposite of discontentment and lusting in covetousness? It's contentment. And specifically, it's contentment in God. And that's where we're going to go next week. In Philippians chapter 4. So a brief, not exhaustive, but hopefully biblical as we're looking at the whole of the Old Testament, New Testament, different passages. What is the root of discontentment? It's lust, it's craving, and it's coveting. It's just wanting more. And if we can fight those two things and then fight for contentment and satisfaction in God, with food, with clothing, we will be content. And us poor people with contentment will be the richest people in the world. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he and he alone is our satisfaction. And so we pray, even now through song, we pray that he would be our vision. That nothing else in this world, save God and God alone, would be our best thought, our highest thought, our satisfaction, our greatest longing. May we crave him. May we have a holy discontentment because we don't have enough of him and we seek him every day in his word. God, we want you. We want you. Be our wisdom. We don't need riches. We don't need man's empty praise. You and you alone are our inheritance now and forever. Be first in our heart, our king, and our treasure.